You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I just want to talk a little bit about the survey that I have going on right now. Um, I've gotten some feedback about the survey, and I just want to let you know that the reason that I'm doing the survey is so I can learn more about the Revision Path audience, who you are, what you do, things of that nature. And we're also using that information to kind of tailor content towards your needs. So your input is really important, especially since we're growing every day. More people are learning about the show. So it really helps to get your feedback on it so we can improve and really make this something that you can be proud of. So this can be a sustainable platform going into the future. Uh, If you haven't taken the survey yet, go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Fill that out. Not only will you help out Revision Path with your feedback, you'll also be automatically entered to win a $100 Amazon.com gift card, which can't beat that. Can't beat free. Uh, Revision Path is supported by MailChimp. MailChimp has over 7 million users, and they are perfect for designers, freelancers, and small businesses. Plus, MailChimp supports the design community, so why not support them as well? Head on over to MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account. Revision Path is also supported by Hover, the best way to buy and manage domains. One really dope thing about Hover is that they have this free valet transfer service that will move your domains from one registrar over to them no matter how many domains you have. Try Hover and get 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 50EPISODES. That's five zero episodes, all one word. That code expires at the end of uh, this month, so get your Black Friday shopping on early and check them out at Hover.com. Speaking of deals, I've got another code for you, another discount at the end of this podcast, but you'll have to listen to the end to find out what it is. And so before that, just one more thing. This episode is sponsored by Facebook. Yes, that Facebook, the one that we all know about. Founded in 2004, Facebook's mission is to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Over 1.35 billion people use Facebook every month to stay connected with friends and family, to discover what's going on in the world, and to share and express what matters to them. Uh, We're on Facebook. There's a really good chance that you probably are too. You know the domain, facebook.com. It's kind of hard to forget. Make sure you check them out. Now, on to this week's interview. When I talked to web strategist, public speaker, and web governance expert Ron Bronson about the opportunities he's gotten and how others can elevate their profile, here's what he had to say. What I tell people is that you know, reaching out to people and letting them know you exist, even though I know that we feel like they should just find us and they should just know we're there. But if I had waited for, if I had done that with my career, I'd still be stuck in my first job. I mean, I just never would have got anywhere if I didn't let folks know that I existed, if I wasn't sharing my insights. This is Revision Path. Let's go. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ron Bronson. I am currently the director of web strategy for the Kentucky Community and Technical College System, which is a uh, the largest post-secondary institution in Kentucky. It's 16 colleges around the state, and I work in the headquarters. And so, what I do is is work with a team to I lead a team that um, oversees sort of all the web properties for the entire system. So everything that involves from public-facing websites, microsites, custom development. Mm-hmm sort of just all anything really public facing web related or back end things we, we deal with. So what particularly is is web strategy and why is that such an important field? 
Well, web strategy is sort of defined as a lot of things, but really it's the overarching strategy of why we're building websites. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, you focus a lot on design and development, right? On the, the pretty and the, and the code and the leanness of things. But, mm-hmm. but for enterprise organizations, I mean, we're higher education, especially at this level as enterprise, like any company would be, the enterprise level, they're more specific questions. You know, we used to just have webmasters, right? I was a webmaster and you just did everything. And then eventually mm-hmm. we hired a few developers or we outsourced companies or agencies and stuff. But there needs to be a, a plan for, you know, if you're, if you're a company or you're a business, you're an organization that's trying to, you know, attract users or attract audiences or attract donors or attract you know, customers, it, understanding how you're going to bring those people to your web properties, what they're going to do when they get forward. You know, it, are we going to, are we going to add this for this reason? Are we going to add a mobile app? Are we going to do these different kinds of things? All of that's encompassed. You know, a lot of that UX, all those things are encompassed in the, in the web strategy. And so that's why organizations are more and more increasingly elevating people to these leadership roles to help senior leaders who, frankly, you know, if they're a VP of something or a president of something, don't have the background, don't have the capabilities, mm-hmm. don't have the skills to understand this stuff. And the web is no longer an afterthought, right? Like it's something that's integral to all of our lives, whether you're five or 55 or 95. And so having people at the, at the leadership table who can help leaders make decisions about the business in digital is, is sort of why we need more of these roles and why more of them are being created. It's interesting, as you mentioned, that the webmaster sort of position is what I, I guess I initially thought of. That's sort of an old, like, 90s relic, I feel like, when people talk about webmasters in that respect. Right, right. Well, the webmaster, I mean, as somebody, like I said, it's evolved a lot, and higher education has come kind of slow to this, but sort of in the enterprise web world, the evolution was the webmaster, the sage IT person who knew everything about everything, or at least they told them that they did, and right. that person. And then it sort of evolved from there to sort of the web manager who would, you know, because everybody went from having a static website to a CMS. So mm-hmm. you need somebody to manage the CMS. So the webmaster becomes the web manager. Then all of a sudden you realize, hey, you know, we would like to do all these extra things. Hey, the iPhone just got created. We want an app. All of a sudden the web manager is thrust into a role where marketing wants something, finance wants something, uh, the business side wants something, and all those competing demands sort of need, you know, sort of a lot of organizations that are, you know, big companies like McDonald's and so forth are actually creating chief digital officers. And, and that role is sort of the, the capstone of this evolution from webmaster to web manager, web manager to sort of web director, web strategy director to the chief digital officer. Harvard has one. It's still an evolving role, but more and more we're finding institutions embracing what, why we need them. You know, How did you find yourself in this particular role? Completely by accident. <laughs> uh, I, I give talks to kids occasionally, you know, to fifth graders or older high school kids, and, and I'll always ask them, what do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? And, and they all tell me what they want to be. And then I always say, I didn't grow up wanting to be a web guy. And they say, well, why? I say, do you know why? And the kids will often say, because it's boring. <laughs> but then I say, well, no, well, sometimes, but then I also respond and say, well, because it didn't exist yet, you know, so I graduated high school in 1997, I used to spend a lot of time online growing up building websites, and I worked at a bookstore in high school, and part of the joy of that was being able to uh, to get books for free, and so I, I, I taught myself HTML at home using a Prodigy web page builder in 1994, you, had, you got free web space, which is why I used it, 
And I used to like reverse engineer, you know, everybody, like everybody learns sometimes backwards uh, websites uh-huh. that I found online and teach myself different things and start building my own, my own sites. But I wanted to learn more. So I worked at the bookstore. I got free books and would teach myself more. And that evolved into PHP and so forth. But this was all, this was definitely not by design. I spent four years in the Air Force after high school as an IT guy, like just network administrator. I mean, just dealing with end users and, and fixing problems and things like that. There wasn't really a whole lot of web involved in that other than dealing with email accounts and so forth. But after that, I went to college. And the joy of college to me having been in the Air Force was, wow, all this free time to do whatever I want. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I use all that free time to spend on the computer and kind of figure out what I missed or, you know, to enhance skills that I sort of worked on. That's when I learned PHP, got involved in all the open source CMSs at the time, movable type and Eventually, it's a WordPress and Drupal and Joomla and all these other things that are out there. But just self-taught. And in 2006, I was living in Wyoming, of all places, and sort of going to grad school, but not really. And this job was posted for a web content editor at a community college 50 miles away. And I had a friend who was a developer. And I was fond of, in, my, in those days, of saying, well, you know, I know a little bit, but I'm not a developer. I mean, I am, but... I had friends who were way better developers than me. So I always said, oh, I'm not, I'm not a developer. You need to talk to Wyatt or talk to this person. And long story short, I had asked a friend and I'm like, I said to him and I said, I think I can do this. And he wrote back and he said, you could totally do that job. So I applied and I got it. And later on, they told me year, like a year and a half later, I had that job and everything went really well. And they told me, you know, when you interview for this job, you know, there were people who were, you know, more qualified than you but we just thought you were a really good fit. We thought you'd just be a really good fit. And boy, we were right. And so, <laughs> you know, but it's amazing that they had that leap of faith because you're right. I mean, at that point, I had done a little bit. I've done some HTML. I was all self-taught, didn't go to school for it, majored in econ and philosophy. So definitely not majoring in anything, um, you know, technical at all. I mean, it has some Air Force experience, but I definitely was not a prototypical developer for hire at that time and wasn't really desiring to be it just sort of happened and then i just evolved from there you know it's really something to be said for the those of us that learned how to design and code in the 90s and early 2000s because it's so it was so it's so different from what it is now you know no kidding now there's there's treehouse and lynda.com and there's really no i mean there's no shortage of of online sort of instructions that you can follow to design websites and learn how to code. And I mean, back in the day, like you said, we were reverse engineering websites, you know, trying to figure out because there weren't really any books and things out, you know, because it was all kinds of other sites. Yep. For real. Yeah. I was, I remember I was doing a lot of stuff around geo cities and tripod pages and yeah, (laughs) it was really something to be said for learning it that way. I miss a little bit of that in the sense that, you know, I spent, so being in higher ed, I took a semester last year and I actually worked in admissions at a different school just to really get a sense of the customer experience. You know, you can be a developer, you can be a web strategist, but to be on the customer side of it and to see how people interface with these things. You don't even expect that they're going to talk to you about the website when you go on the road, but then you get out there, you go to a college fair, you have thousands of people talking to you and half their questions are about things they couldn't find on the website or things that were there, they looked on the website and didn't like. And so I thought I tell people all the time now that that's like your best user user research. But anyway, a lot of you know kids will come up to me pretty often and say, "I want to make video games," or "I, I want to make video games." And more often than not, there were kids who were you know of color who would come to me and say, "I want to make video games," or "I want to build websites and stuff." And I would always ask them the same question every single time, which is, "Have you started yet?" And they'd always say, "No, my school doesn't have that." 
And then I'd always mm-hmm. give my, cause it's really busy. So I would never, I would never, I didn't have time to talk to them about it, but I say, here's my card. You're going to go home and you're going to email me. And I'm going to send you a list of websites that you're going to go online and you can find, you can start programming right now. You don't need your teacher to teach you this. You can do this on your own. Cause you're right. We yes. learned at a time when we knew more than our teachers did. I had a you know, computer class where I was the one teacher, <laughs> teacher was teaching us, but really it was us doing the work. He didn't know any better. And now there's so many opportunities and so many different things, but kids are using the tools. They're not making the tools. And to me, I feel like there's a little bit lost in that because they don't realize that they can. They just don't know. Becoming consumers, and I think we lose a little bit there. So I think getting that message out there that, hey, you know, you can do this now. You don't have to wait is, is a good one. So like you mentioned, you're working in higher education. And I guess this is stemming from that you know original position that you talked about before when you worked at that community college in Wyoming. Are there sort of particular considerations as it relates to, I guess, web strategy and things for higher education websites? Yes, because you're not, because it's different than, say, an enterprise situation where you're dealing with customers or different than starting one for your own business or something. You've got so many different audiences. You're dealing with prospective students. You've got current students who are using site for their very specific purpose. You've got parents going to the website. You've got vendors who want to you know want to sell you things coming to your website you have folks who are looking for jobs going to your website you've got to build a, a property that appeals to all those audiences well because they're all looking for different things sometimes the same thing mm-hmm. and so there are a lot of different and then of course you get internal and you've got faculty who want to get their message out you've got administrators who think certain things are important you have federal requirements that you have to adhere to in terms of displaying certain content in certain places so there are a lot of competing demands, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, most institutions don't have the support or the time or the money to invest in all the things they need. So you, you find yourself sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul pretty often. It's interesting you mentioned that. I look at a lot of uh, websites for HBCUs for the work I do work for the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force with AIGA, and so with that, I do a lot of outreach to HBCUs, and the websites are. They range, I mean, they run the gamut. You know, there are some that are really well done, extremely easy to find information. And then there are others where every link is a PDF. Yes. And you can't find really what you're looking for because of that. So, yeah, like you said, you have to cater to all of these different audiences. It sounds like that would be a real challenge to, to overcome. I mean, when you're thinking about private sector sites and things, you sort of have maybe one or two use cases in mind of who your ideal customer is. Whereas, like you said, with, with education sites, you've got prospective students, faculty, parents. There's so many different factors that you have to sort of weigh in with. And as a, in building private sites, the other thing, too, is, is you don't have 50 different people trying to schedule meetings to tell you what should go where it should go. Um, like you uh, be the subject matter expert. When you come in as your consultant, you get to be the subject matter expert of the – particular thing you're working for, working on. And sure, they may be a heavy-handed client or whatever else, but ultimately, they're relying on you to bring your expertise to the fray. Higher ed, mm-hmm. oftentimes, depending on the institution, and this is really variable. Some institutions are, are much better than this about this, but in many institutions, people find themselves in situations where they're expected to just really just be the person putting things out there, that people don't really want you to come in and say, well, no, we can't do that, and here's why. Um, they just want you mm-hmm. to figure it out. They want you to just do it. And so that extra layer of bureaucracy 
makes it even more challenging. Now, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from doing this. Part of the reason I wanted to do this is to get folks interested in working in higher ed because we need more uh-huh. people. But that's another one of the, the sort of the strange nature of, of, of working it on the web and higher ed things is, is all the bureaucracy, all the leadership and administration that can oftentimes, and again, it's, it's variable, can make it more of an impediment to um, getting things done because they just don't understand and don't want to listen. And part of that is the fact that, you know, generally speaking, a lot of your average web people are younger and a lot of your leadership are older. And so it's an interesting yeah. sort of weird juxtaposition for the academy to sort of wrap its mind around that, you know, the mm-hmm. experts, the experts are kids, but not really, because a lot of the people I know are, you know, in their 40s and, and older who have been doing this for a long time, but a lot of people are not. Talk to me about the concept of web governance. You sort of mentioned earlier about how you may have all these different viewpoints and, and factors that go into making the website and the content and things like that. So you've got 50 different people telling you to do things 50 different ways. What is web governance and how does it sort of factor into making sites for higher ed? I've been talking a lot about web governance this past year because it's probably, I'd say, you know, sort of given the roles I've had, sort of my number one thing, but I never really thought about it as such. It was just something that I was doing. And then I started doing more research and doing more talks on it. And I used to tell people from the beginning, look, web governance is the least sexy thing to talk about. So I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Like, I'm an exciting speaker, but web governance is going to be tough. And I seem to make it work. But web governance really is defined as the – it's really what it sounds like. It's how – it's sort of the the processes and procedures for how you manage your website. So, I mean, every place is a little bit different. In higher ed, I I tell people oftentimes it's unique, you know – what really is distilling what are the what are the what's the purpose of your website establishing that really simplistically like you know vision statement here's what the site's for here's what, here's the purpose of the website here are the five or six things that we're trying to do and based with that then you start to talk about uh, actually executing like the leadership of managing your site so you pick if it's a company picking the five people or the however many people who are going to be your steering committee the ones who are going to make decisions You've got a person who's probably doing those things like a web manager or whoever, and then you've got other folks who are influencing those decisions because often, as you know, web people, we can make really great sites, but we're not often the subject matter expert of the site that we're working on. We don't know what the mm-hmm. medical company does. We don't know what this hospital does, but we want to build a really right. great site for them. So you need their input, their insight, their perspective, their information to make the site work, or you've got a really great shell with no content. Which is often Mm -hmm. everywhere, not just higher ed, but it's an enterprise problem, right? You can't get the content Mm -hmm. you need, or you get too much content and you can't call it down. That's a good problem to have. Um, (laughs) You know, governance enables you to set those priorities, set those goals, and then to be able to, because if you have effective government strategies, so your strategy is simply, you know, here are the mission, here's the vision. When someone says X, Y, or Z, you can go back to those initial things that were set. You've got different structures in place. You've got an executive committee that's leading sort of the, the sort of the day-to-day of the site, telling you, you know, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're doing these things. And then below them, if you have a CMS, you've got content managers around the, around the particular, in my case, a campus. But if it's a hospital or if it's a business, folks who are responsible for, you know, providing the content for their department or their area. And then you have content authors in often cases who are, you know, maybe updating the CMS or updating pages and so forth because one person can't do it all in, you know, a site of any real size. So this web governance actually delineates and documents all of this so that you know who's doing what, generally speaking, when. Now, of course, to be fair, 
the reason governance is not sexy is because no one's really tackling it super well. <laughs> and if you do, you don't have time to talk about it because you're too busy doing other things. But, but that's the concept is really just the, the process and procedure towards what we're doing, not just kind of doing what most of us do, which is to sort of just get in where we fit in and kind of just hope for the best. It, it, it creates process and procedure behind it. It sort of sounds like it also plays into a lot of, of content strategy as well, too. Yes. So they go hand in hand. And so, you know, sort of Lisa Welchman is it was one of the people who's sort of one of the pioneers in this in this in this, in this, this field. And they talk about content strategy being one of the components of web governance. I'm walking out, I'm working on a talk on this and I'm actually trying to find my talks. I'm like, ooh, this would be really great. Um <laughs> throw in there. But yeah, it's just one of those one of the components of of web strategy is is I'm sorry web web governance yeah so the four components I was trying to find this the four components of web strategy are strategy governance execution and measurement what's your strategy how are you managing your strategy who's doing what where's the execution is where's it going to go when it gets you know who's going to put it where and then measuring it you know KPIs or mm-hmm. if you if you're putting things out there and you don't know how whether it's working or not right. How do you know what to fix and when? So strategies, def- content strategy is definitely a part of this. And you're finding way more content strategy out there now, especially in higher ed. We've got a whole community of people who are, so because we have a lot of content, <laughs> help right. us wrangle that revolution. So we're definitely on the board there with that. But governance, we're still kind of lagging behind because it's, it's a tough animal. See, to me, that sounds like the perfect setup. I mean, just what I'm thinking about, as a designer or as a developer that's working on the site, the fact that you don't really have to do a lot with the content in terms of getting it from the client and things like that, making sure that you've got some instance of web governance built into the content strategy. Because like you said, the problem becomes you don't want to build this empty shell of a site around not having content. And then once you do get content, you have to sort of shoehorn it into this website or you find you have to make more changes because of the type of content that you have, it can really make, you know, it makes your job harder because you have to do the work twice. Absolutely. I think anybody who's out there who's a, you know, you're an independent person working with any organization of size, even a smaller organization, it would be mm-hmm. you to either, you know, do some reading on this and integrate it into your tactics or if not, you know, make it part of your proposal that, this is part of the conversation because the only way people are going to start to understand the importance of this is if we communicate mm-hmm. to them why it's important because you can build a really great site. But how many times have you built a really great site for a client who a year later was either complaining about what you did for them or calling you again <laughs> to change it again because they, somebody doesn't like it anymore because they can't manage it or they don't know how to do whatever. And so being able to give sort of this whole integrated approach, right, where you've got the design, the development, but also the strategy and the governance behind it helps them feel like once they get around to it, that when you leave, that there's a mechanism for, for making this whole thing, you know, work, you know, you just have a pretty site, they've got a whole, you know, sort of whole entity working sort of invisible mm-hmm. kind of thing. Are there any tips that designers can do to, to start folding this into their process like i can speak from personal experience because i'm going through this now where i have a client where we agreed that we were going to start working on the site at a certain date mm-hmm. they've lagged behind for weeks to get content so now the project is is sort of lagging uh-huh. behind i've started building stuff already and then they're sort of supplying content but the content is not really 
in the best form that I can really use. Of course. And so, it, you know, that makes the project weird. And now all of a sudden I'm the bad guy because they send me something that's in all caps. And I'm like, I can't use that. Of course. What are some tips that you think that, like, designers out there that are listening can can start folding this into their process to, uh, to make it easier for, for projects? I'm working on a book on this, but so I okay. so I can hopefully give you better stuff down the road. But I say sort of initially because I know people have are pressed for time and it's hard to integrate this stuff. The simplest way you can do it is two ways that I can think of offhand. The first is that first and you know that first initial meeting. Okay, you got the gig, woohoo, money. Being able to sit them down and say, okay, let's talk about the vision. What are we trying to do here? You know. And they talk about, you know, four or five guiding principles for the website's purpose. Like, what are we trying to achieve here? Because what you want to do with that conversation is start focusing them, but also to help you be able to keep them focused when in two months they've changed their complete plan and they saw some really cool shiny objects someplace that they want to use instead of everything you talked about. And so having that and having it written down and then sending it to them. So you can say, these are going to be our governing principles for how we manage this website, you know, or whatever you want to call it. Put your own spin on it. The second thing I would say in terms of content is taking a page from the content strategy world and coming up with a, you know, sort of before the site's launched, a content calendar that just says, okay, you know, these milestones are the content milestones. You need to work on this while I work on what I'm working on, because if I don't have we don't have this, we can't launch. You know, making it mm-hmm. part of making it part and putting the onus on them, which I know people hate and I recognize can be difficult sometimes. But again, use your own discretion and think about projects that are of a size enough that it's worthwhile to do this. Mm-hmm. Because even though it's a little painful to sort of become the policeman to your client, I think that on the back end, what I found from doing this, even projects we've run in house here, where we've had our internal clients do this, what we thought, especially the content part of this, you know, with having a, to get us content at this time frame and it'd be fair they're never going to really meet their deadlines but it but it but it puts the pressure on them and then they come back to you say hey i'm sorry i know i'm supposed to get this to you i'm working on it or we're going to meet together and we're going to figure this out whereas mm-hmm. we weren't doing that i found people were just kind of looking at us like well you can write this right but you can put this together right and it's like no this <laughs> is your job this is your website providing the conversation of ownership into it will help them and so that calendar gives you or some kind of document that delineates this gives you the ability to come back and say, we agreed to this. You know, we discussed this months ago. We discussed this weeks ago. Now I need your help to be able to do this. And again, I recognize in the real world, these things don't always work out, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you figure if you keep doing it for you, for us as people who are on the client side of, on the client side of this, if you continue to do that, the first time you do okay, it doesn't work as well. But you, if you figure out some ways to refine it for the next time and then the next uh-huh. time and then the next time, and plus, if a client is a regular client of yours, they start to hear this. And the third time you worked on a project together, they start to this starts to become familiar to them. Like, oh, I remember this topic. We talked about this before. And so that's just those are my sort of two throwaway things that I can think of that might help a little bit. No, those are great. It's it's interesting. I've I've kind of got goosebumps over here when you're saying this stuff because I swear to God, like the past few months. That has been what I've been going through. Like, I've been that policeman mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. clients to say, like, I need content by this date uh-huh. based on the schedule because if I don't have it, I can't move forward. Right. And then we're going to have scope creep. You're going to have to pay more and blah, 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 exactly. blah. And the interesting thing that I found, and I don't know, maybe it's just my, my bullish approach, but the interesting thing that I found is that when you sort of uh, sort of push back, 
yes. on the client like that. Mm-hmm. At least in my experience, they hate it. Yes. They're like, how dare you? Why are you telling – like I'm paying you exactly. to do this work. How, why are you making me do work? But it's more along – the principle I feel though is that we want you to be just as invested in this project as know. we are. And if you're going to pay us to do X, Y, Z for the expert part – you know, you know your business better than we do. Bingo. So if we're asking you to create content, that's because you're the expert. We're not the expert in that. We're the expert in this. That's why you're paying us. Exactly. So you're the expert in what you do. You get the content together. You give it to us. We, you know, put it together for the web and we make it happen. But it's interesting how many clients I have encountered that content just seems to be this this afterthought or they expect the designer to do it and i mean i'll tell my clients like you know i can write it for a price but i would prefer not to because you know your business better than i do one side note to this and this is from a audience listening perspective you know sort of a partnership thing because you mentioned this and it's so true that content strategy is sort of all the rage now it would behoove a lot of us i think if you're out there and you're you're doing a lot of side work or freelance especially if you're freelancing at a certain level and you're dealing with these clients who just like you know what i don't want to deal with this Maybe in your mm-hmm. proposals, partnering with a content strategist to come in and not to write everything for them. But then all of a sudden, if some clients might go for that, where you're saying, all right, you want 100 pages written, <laughs> you know, you want 10 pages written. Um, this person right. you know, is on my team and they're going to be able to help you do X, Y and Z. Because two things I can see there. The one I can see if they like it, it obviously helps you. It helps you offer another service. The other mm-hmm. thing is that the person's worth worth their salt in terms of writing ability and things like that. that what you might find is, is the client figures out, oh, you know, this is so much better written than what I can write. Because, you know, most clients, a lot of times, they can tell you what they do, but the content isn't very good. It's not SEO friendly. It's not great for the web. So that's the other challenge, too. And so I'm just thinking from the perspective of all of us are out here trying to hustle and trying to work hard and, and sort of get to that next step of that next level. Partnerships, relationship building is mission critical. And so anywhere you can find somebody who's out there doing something. And again, it's all about finding the right fit. But I would encourage people to, to make those partnerships and, and, and you know, kind of go in together because I'm finding, at least on my side, again, on, the, on the other side of this, I mean, I've done some, some side work, but on the customer side of this, seeing that makes you look more impressive. But it also, I would love to be able to outsource that kind of stuff. And when we, we can, we do, because it's just, it's just extra work that I don't want to think about, you know? Yeah. So, the more the more services you can offer to the partnerships, the better it is from the from the on the buyer side. Because trust me, we just don't have the time to deal with it. And oftentimes, the folks who are doing the buying, you know, whether it's a boss or somebody else, they don't always know what they need. So they're coming to you to hope you can tell them what they really mm-hmm. need. Because we just don't know oftentimes what we need. So that's just an extra addendum there. Good point. Good point. I want to switch gears a little bit. You've spoken at several conferences on web strategy, web governance, and and other topics. And a really big topic these days with regards to speaking at conferences and things is about the diversity of speaker panels and, you know, the speaker rosters and things like that. How did you get started speaking at conferences? And are there any sort of tips that you would give to someone that wants to begin kind of on the speaking route, like say someone that's like mid-career that wants to start giving talks and things? Yes. So how did I get involved? Like everything else, completely by accident. But um, <laughs> well, I was a I mean, higher ed web community is not very big, so you know there's a lot of us, and so not a lot of us. I mean, but and so I've been blogging. So how I got into all this to begin with is is I 
was I've been a blogger since, you know, just like you, I'm sure, before we started calling the blogging, right? It was in the late 90s, early mm -hmm. 2000s, and I was always putting things online and, and whatever else. And had a, I've had a, for their folks on Twitter that I've been following for, you know, 15 years because we used to read each other's blogs and there were eight of us doing it, although we thought there were mm -hmm. more at the time. And so anyway, the blogging kind of got me into speaking a little bit. I've been talking a long time, but it had never really done it in this kind of way until a few years ago. So sort of my community is sort of interesting. And so, you know, a lot of our conferences are just you submit a talk and you get accepted. So it's not it's a little bit more egalitarian in that way than a place you got to get picked for a panel and stuff, which has led me to get things where people call me and say, oh, we saw you at X, Y, Z thing or so and so reference to you. I'd love to have you come do this thing. I'm finally just now branching out in sort of the non specific higher ed web conferences. I'm sort of branching out a little bit as far as advice that I have. I think that, especially in terms of diversity, I just put on my own conference a few, a few weeks ago. And one of the things I can tell you is somebody who was desperate to diversify, not a lot of women, but I didn't have a, really a lot of people of color. And part of that is, is frankly, my network wasn't as diverse as it could be. I mean, I, I will tell you that I am notorious for like following black from color, <laughs> brown folks on Twitter just to try mm -hmm. to like, I mean, there are folks that I know in a non-higher, high, non-web context, but in terms of web contacts my, my contacts definitely were not are not as diverse as i'd like it to be part of that's just because i've lived in places like wyoming for a lot of my, my adult life so it doesn't mm. lend itself to that but what i tell people is that you know reaching out to people and letting them know you exist even though i know that we feel like they should just find us and they should just know we're there but if i had waited for if i had done that with my career i'd still be stuck in my first job i mean i just never would have got anywhere if i didn't let folks know that i existed if i wasn't sharing my insights and so I would tell you, not you, but tell people out there to, you know, share your insights, let people know you exist. If you see a cool event, reach out to somebody and say, hey, this looks like a really awesome event. How can I speak? And if they can't take you that year, they may not, maybe next year they'll take you or they can reference you to somebody else, especially with this being all the rage conversation now in terms of diversifying, you know, events. I think letting people know that you're willing and able. For instance, again, when I did my event, I knew I couldn't pay people to come. I knew I couldn't do it. And it could just come. It was a shoestring event. And so I felt weird reaching out to folks who I didn't know and saying, hey, I'd love for you to come talk. I've read your blog, yada, yada, yada. Would love to have you come speak at my event. Also, I can't afford to pay you. <laughs> like maybe I could have put them up in a hotel, but that's all I could have done. So I felt weird doing that. And I have issues anyway with just reaching out to people anyway. It's not really my comfort zone. I've gotten better at it, but it's not something I'm intuitively good at. So if other people who are running events are like me at all, I would imagine a lot of that is, from what I've heard from a few folks, that's pretty similar. That, you know, sponsors aside, you may see a lot of sponsors on a website for an event, but I can assure you that a lot of these events are just shoestring things that are labors of love by people who are a little bit, little bit off kilter like me. So <laughs> letting folks know that you're interested is a, is a good first step continuing to tweet and share your insights and things like that. So folks, you end up on folks radar is another good thing to do because the experience is so vital. If you have the experience, the other thing I'd say, honestly, is creating your own events. You know, like if, you, if, you, if the sandbox is full, you know, what? make another sandbox. There are so many, the event that we created aggregate conference was in Louisville this past September was born literally out of conversations with friends who we're sort of on the same circuit and feeling like, you know what, we want a different kind of event. You know, we don't even quite know exactly what this looks like. We just have an idea of what we think should work. And it was me, mostly me pushing the steam, but folks who bought in pretty early on who are like, you know what, I buy that. Let's do this. 
And so I would tell people, if you feel like, you know, we're not getting the exposure or not getting the, uh, not getting elevated, elevate your own voice, elevate your own voices and elevate the voices of people that you feel close and comfortable and who share your vision. Because we don't, you know, there's no shortage of events, but I think that the world can always have a, a, more, you know, and folks speak with their dollars. So. See, I was about, to, I was just about to ask you about aggregate sort of more so from the speaker angle, like, do you see the whole issue of speaker diversity from a different angle now that you've created your own conference? I do. I'm a black guy that started the conference for the white people. <laughs> I mean, I felt really weird about it. I really did. I mean, there was there was some diversity, but not much. And, and I felt mm-hmm. really bad about it. I felt terrible about it. But to be completely honest, 85% of this, not 85%, but at least 80% of the folks who spoke at my conference are friends of mine, people who I knew really well, who were like, all right, I know, Ron, we'll fly to this, we'll fly to Kentucky for you, but we would never do this for anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. So you pull from your network mostly, like you said before. Exactly. And that, and then years of relationships. I mean, these are the folks I met last week, you know, these folks I've known for years who've seen my work, who've dealt with me in other contexts. And so they had, and they, and they knew the vision a little bit. So it was easier to convince them. The few folks I did reach out to who I didn't know who were, you know, and I'm not hating on anybody because folks got their own life and their own things to do and they didn't know me. Either didn't respond or like, you can't pay me, I can't come. And I didn't do a lot of that because, again, it was pretty early on. It was a new event and I felt like I got a lot of stressors, a lot of things that I'm trying to accomplish here. So it's hard to try to – you can't do everything in a first-time event, right? You can't accomplish everything you want to accomplish. And so I felt like – let me pull this thing off. Let me pull this off. Let me have it be successful. And then next year, I can make a better push. I can do better. I can branch out to people like you, who you know, I've seen on Twitter but didn't know. You know, I can do those kinds of things and make a better effort at it. And if I've talked to you next year and you talk to me, you're like, yo, Ron, you said that you were going to do this. And this <laughs> was last year. What gives, man? Like, you could call me on that because, you know, I had a better insight. I had a better perspective. You know, I can reach out to people and have a better network. So I definitely see it from a different perspective. Now, do I think that excuses people? Absolutely not. I think that people with, you know, with much power comes much responsibility, right? And at every level, at every gradient, we have a responsibility to elevate voices, to reach out, to branch out. And even though, like I said, that audience was, was predominantly, you know, predominantly non-African American, non-non-people of color, I will say that I've always been adamant about reaching out to people in, community, in my community who you know, don't speak much or who mm-hmm. you don't see on the circuit. I don't want to see the same people, the same voices all the time. I've been adamant because I was that guy a few years ago. I was that guy that nobody had heard of, that nobody was talking to. They would go to a conference and no one knew who they were and wouldn't talk to you. And now I'm on the other side of that, but I'm always wanting to elevate those voices because I feel like there are good things. There are good people out there doing great work who we just don't hear from. I don't think that with a shortage of great people out there. So we all have a responsibility as organizers of events to, to, to do better. And so I don't think, I don't think the excuses of, well, we couldn't find anybody when they've got sponsors, you know, major sponsors and they're doing it and they're selling the conference out in 10 minutes. I don't buy that. I think they need to work harder at, at reaching out and branching out and bringing new people into the fold. Because if I can do it on a little conference, my conference was over half women. And I didn't, it wasn't hard for me to do that. Like, I mean, I did that in my sleep almost. So if I can do that at a little conference, surely when I mean, you've got resources, you can do the same thing. So I think we can keep the pressure on people and keep them having to explain their choices, you know, because fine, do what you want, have whatever event you want, but don't get upset when folks either don't come or call you on it because it's 2014, you know? Preach on. <laughs> I completely. I completely 
10,000% stand behind that. But but one thing I guess that you mentioned, though, or I guess didn't really mention, though, is when it comes to sort of reaching out to people, uh, like you said, you want to find people that you don't really see that are, are speaking a whole lot. One thing that I found from talking with people is that, and, and these are ones that are thinking about getting out there and speaking, but they'll say, well, I don't know what to talk about. Or, or there's some like, uh, there's like a, there's certainly like, I, I guess like a lack of confidence behind really getting up and presenting yourself as an expert on something. Yes. Do you have any kind of, of tips or, or tricks or anything like that to sort of get people out of that shell? I've been loath to call myself an expert in anything because it just sounds jerky. You know, for, for years, I told you, I said I didn't want to call myself a developer because I had my friends who were better developers than me. So I didn't want to say I was a developer. And it wasn't until like the past 12 months or so that I finally decided, actually leaving the web for a minute and going to work in admissions, that it finally caught me. I'm like, no, I'm a developer. I'm just not as, you know, maybe I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, but I am this and that. You've got to embrace your talent and your expertise. You've got to, if you're doing this, even if you're not you know, at the level you want to be at. I mean, you have to. It's like, it's like I like my best friend. My best friends and I always, I make metaphors to sports all the time. But I'm like, a minor league baseball player is still a professional baseball player. He just ain't in majors yet. And so you've got to assess what your level is, assess where you want to be, but understand that, that you are a professional. Someone's paying you to do this, even if it's $25, you're a professional. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you comport yourself with the, you know, with the posture of someone that you want to be, you know, you say dress for success, you know, be who you want to be. Well, be that person. And so as far as not having topics to talk about, I think blogging helps a lot with that. And you don't need, I mean, people don't need to think about blogging in the sense of, I need to have something to say every day. I think you and I both know that when you get busier, you're not blogging every day. You're not blogging every month sometimes. <laughs> um, That's true. But you're putting the message out there when you when you can and when you, and when you feel like it. And and the thing about sharing that stuff is, and what I've always been able to do with blogging is I've never been viewed it as as a thing that I was worried about whether anyone was reading or not. I started blogging because I just had some ideas in my head about you know I'd done my professional job for a few years. I mean, in terms of professional blogging, I've been personal blogging forever, but I didn't start professional blogging until uh, 08. And it was because I was in Wyoming. I left Wyoming at that point, but I thought. I got all these ideas, and I think I'm smart, and I know some stuff, but I don't know if I'm right or if I'm full of crap. Like, I don't know if I'm if – I, am I good for good, or am I good for where I'm at? Am I good for Wyoming? Am I just a really good webmaster in this small space, or am I really good at this in general? And that was the challenge and the question that I had for myself. I didn't know the answer to that question. So I suffered from that crisis of confidence a great deal, and it wasn't until I left and kind of ended up ended up in Chicago working at another school, at a small school in the suburbs of Chicago, which is a much bigger place than where I had been. To where it occurred to me, oh, no, you're, you're pretty good at this. <laughs> yeah, you, You're okay. And so I'd say to anybody who thinks they're not good enough or, or they struggle with, with their ability level, look, if you have deficiencies, bolster those things. If there are things you're not as good at, you know, like figure out what you're really great at or figure out – I ask folks, my, a lot of my friends these days are trying to figure out what to do with their lives. You know, we all get 30, 30 in our 30s and we're like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm going to be 40 soon. And it's – I always say, you know, well, how much do you think you should make? And usually invariably someone will say six figures. And I'll say, well, give me all the things you think that you can do that someone should pay you six figures for. And almost all the time, the things they say are not things that anybody's going to pay them six figures for. Right. You've got to figure <laughs> out. Right. And it's not being a hater. Just like, look, like that sounds wonderful. I'm not paying you six figures for any of that. You know, figuring out what your value added is 
And if there's, you know, development or I'm really good at CSS or I'm really good at, you know, Python or I'm really good at Ruby or I'm really good at, you know, training people in workshops. For myself personally, I talked about the, you know, strategy thing and all those other things. But it wasn't until this year that I figured out, you know, I'm really good at training people. I'm really good at workshops. So I should be doing more of that. And so I'm working on, you know, developing more platforms for me to do more training and to do more workshops because I'm really good at that stuff. But it took me years to figure out. Trying to be a you know trying to be a good developer, but also a good designer, but also a good this and also a good that. Look, you can't play every position on the court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't do every. You can't be the center and the point guard. You got to pick your spot and get really good at that spot. You know, and so I think all of us can kind of. So once you recognize that, you can go out there and do that, and you don't need to go to a national conference all the time. You can start small, start locally. You know, teach people to teach the old ladies at the community college, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, get, and get that confidence because they're going to think you're smart regardless. Oh, honey, you look just mm-hmm. like your grandson. Like <laughs> everything that you do, right? Like pick your crowd, pick little kids, right? Like they'll think you're a rock star. And then you can elevate from there. You don't have to always think that you got to go to a list apart to be the smart yeah. <laughs> because you're not going to start there. Like you're not going to start there. And, no, and you really shouldn't, right? No, I, I completely understand when I when I've talked with people that are interested in, in getting at speaking, it's like they always think about these really big stages as the first place they speak. Like I want to go to South by Southwest. I'm like right, right. start local. Sort of like you said, like talk with kids, first. Talk, <laughs> yeah, like talk with kids, talk with nonprofits, talk with you know, senior citizens, like I, I don't want to say that those are like low hanging fruit, but I mean just in terms of you know, you're an expert to somebody. Exactly. Even if you don't feel that you are maybe within the the realm of what the industry is currently, sure. there's a 12 year old that wants to be where you are. <laughs> you know, and even even at the level that you feel like you're not the expert, to them you're the expert. Bingo. And the funny thing is, you mentioned that, but I know you've done national speaking. And I have too. Even even in the midst of all of that, you can go to weapons of mass creation, but you can also still work with those senior citizens the week later. Like I didn't stop working with the big the little people, little people. I said, yeah, mission marks, right? Like we still do that, and so like people shouldn't view that as a downgrade or a bad thing because like you can you can frankly you can you can eat real well off of little things like that if you if you tactically if you position it correctly, you can make yeah. that work just as well as those national events because those national events oftentimes are. And I'm not trying to be like funny about it, but. Those things are often more of a headache than they're worth. So, like, don't be – people should realize that, like, it's fun and it's cool, but, like, it's definitely – there's definitely sort of two sides to all of that. Right. <laughs> and it's not lucrative, what? right? Like, there's nothing lucrative about, like, going to a national conference. Like, nothing. And most of the time you're paying your own way. <laughs> I don't know. I just like to, you know, demystify that. No, no, no. That's – I mean, that's a valid point to make. It's I was actually talking about that with someone – a little bit earlier today around sort of speakers and getting paid for, for speaking. And I know the the big thing now, I'd say, well, I guess it was more so big last year, was around making sure that people were really getting paid for speaking. And I was telling someone that, you know, I've spoken at places since 2003. I've yeah. spoken at, you know, different, you know, organizations and events and things like that. And I told them that this year, when you mentioned Weapons of Mass Creation Fest, I was like, the year that I spoke at Weapons of Mass Creation Fest was my first paid speaking gig. Yeah. Everything that I've had before that has not been. And granted, I think that for people that are out there that have done a lot of speeches, they'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe that. And that might speak to a, I mean, honestly, that might speak to a larger issue around people of color and and compensation, you know, which... 
that's that's a whole another conversation. But also for me, it's been a lot of the places I've spoken have been local. Yes, there have been a couple of national states. Like I've spoken to South by Southwest, you know, even done some some government work speaking. Yes. But like, it's not. I'm not getting a check from. Well, I mean, I'm getting a check, but not yeah. not just yeah. for speaking. You know what I mean? So that's something I think that that might be also worth kind of throwing in the mix there. What do you think has been your biggest asset to your success? Going places that nobody else wanted to go. <laughs> like that's, that's the God. I didn't joke about that, but it's so true. Going places that nobody else wanted to go. You know, living in a Wyoming, living in uh, twice. My brother's still there. Um, you know, living in rural communities or, or going to other places. I'm not hating on any of those places because, to be honest with you, I enjoy my time pretty much anywhere I live. I can make it work. Um, just give me a coffee shop and, and some decent food, and I'm good to go even if the city's nearby. But, you know, what I learned pretty early on is you speak to you speaking to the idea of, you know, being say a minority or, or whatever is opportunities in general. I don't care who you are. If you, you know, starting at an even place are hard to come by, you know, getting your break as it were. And once I realized, I mean, I'm from New Jersey originally, had a lot of friends who were at home who were in New York city doing stuff and intern in their late twenties and stuff. And this was, and these were anomalies, but or not, you know, they are frustrated with their jobs or feeling like they weren't getting the sort of the do they needed to get. And I've cultivated a career mostly in places that were so off the beaten path. But what I tell people is, is look, the experience that you get in XYZ place that isn't as sexy as Austin or, or Silicon Valley or, or Denver even is still experience. <laughs> and yeah. oftentimes I find that you put that on a resume and it's still experience. Nobody looks at it and goes, oh, well, the websites in Wyoming work differently, so I can't hire you. <laughs> like, no, it's still experience. Mm-hmm. And so if you can speak to that experience, you can go to that better place, better place, I'm putting quotation marks, to where you'd like to be if you get the experience first. And so don't feel like if you're in this rat race, running a rat race in some major city because you're comfortable with that, not that there's anything wrong with that, that if you leave, that somehow the experience you get elsewhere isn't relevant. Because I tell you, if I hadn't, I know for a fact that if, not to say that I would be successful in a different way, but I certainly would not be where I am if I hadn't been fortunate enough to get sort of the first job that I got in Wyoming and then I went back a few years ago and did more work there, people believing in me. And the funny thing about this from a racial perspective, I guess, to say in terms of like, and I knew you didn't ask this, but it just kind of came to me, but like about being black and being sort of a strategist or being a web person in general, right? I joke with my close friends, not all of them are black about this, and say that, like, I was like, people sometimes I think they'd be more comfortable if I was a basketball coach. Like, like if, mm-hmm. if, I, if the, especially in higher ed, right? And it's not that anyone's ever said anything. Well, that's not true. People have said things, but not, I don't get it very much. It's very rare that this happens. But, mm-hmm. but people, but still, people are sort of confused. And it happens, I would say it happens less now, but I don't know if that's true. People are confused by sort of you. Like they don't really understand kind of how you got there and like why you yeah. the stuff and you you know what I'm talking about. So like yeah. but I didn't get that in some of the other places, like in places where you wouldn't expect to be, I didn't get any of that. Like at all. People were positive and encouraging and I had bosses who were like super, super supportive and like mentoring and stuff. So like you would think that, you know, in a more urban place or in a more whatever setting that you would get, you know, people with more diversity or whatever, that people would tend to be more accepting because they have more exposure. But I sort of found, I would say in general, this is my limited experience, the opposite of that, that in places where you expect people to be more closed minded, I found more openness and more support for me and my professional sort of skills and development than I ever found in places where there was more diversity. So I guess I say find, you know, sort of get in where you fit in. I guess that was a long winded, mm-hmm. but I don't know. 
what's the most important thing that you've learned from your work? That's a good question. Still learning. Would that be the most important thing? Yeah, that you're always still learning. You know, like you're always growing. The the stuff I've learned, I've learned more this year than I learned in the eight years before because I just kept pushing myself to, you know, you get in these jobs or getting situations professionally where you're pushing yourself. Like, don't get complacent. Like, don't stay in the same job five years and get mm-hmm. make it so get to where it's easy. You know, be Neo in the Matrix. Keep elevating yourself. Keep rising up. You know, keep dodging bullets because it makes you sharper. It makes you better. So I think that's the thing I've learned is when, when I feel like I'm at a point where I need to learn more and do more, then we go and we do more and we learn more. And it's not always easier. It's, it'd definitely be easier to do the other thing. But by sharpening yourself and enhancing your skills and pushing yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, too. I think makes you more nimble because we're in a world where everybody's a commodity now, where our time is commodities, where our individual skills are commodified. We're not, there's no more gold watches. There's no more 20 year things. If you're in the military, you do that. And so it's mission critical for all of us, whether we're four or 44 to continue to not just upgrade our skills for our job, but to better ourselves so that we could be competitive in a, in a world that, might not have as much value for you tomorrow as they did for you today. And it's, you can't always put a premium on when that's going to happen. Right. Like, so just stay, stay agile. If the old you could see the new you, I guess the new, the you that you're at right now, what do you think that they would say? How did this happen? (laughs) (laughs) I'll say this. I've never said this publicly, but I'll say it because it's kind of funny. So in high school, I was notorious for skipping school. Do not do this, children. If anyone's child is listening, do not tell them to do this. Please do not skip school. It is a really bad idea. Stay in school, kids. Um, stay, stay in school, kids. But I did skip school a lot. But I didn't skip school to hang out with my friends. I skipped school because my best friend had a, I had a computer at home, too, but I couldn't go to my house to skip school. My parents would not have allowed that mess. My best friend lived around the corner from the high school, and so and his parents didn't, weren't born at home during the day. And so I would go to his house where he had a computer. And I sit on it, sit at home, sit at his house. I mean, for days sometimes and just mess around building websites, teaching myself new things. And now I look back on, look back on that. My mother gives me grief about it. Still, my dad doesn't say as much. He just laughs. But my mother teaches me grief about it. And whenever my my best friend shows up, she goes, you guys can just skip school all day now because you're adults, you know. But I I always say to her, I'm like, if I hadn't done that, I don't know what I'd be doing for a living. (laughs) So... I guess the mission there is is if you find a passion and you find a but the little old me would look at the new me and probably be like, I'm proud of you for sticking with it because I could have stopped. Right. But it didn't. It just could have been playing around and I didn't. So I think the, the old me would look at the new me and be really confused that that all turned into something because Lord knows I didn't do it thinking it was going to be anything. I just thought it was interesting. There was no plan at all. Well, if you weren't doing this, what do you think you would be doing? One thing that I saw when – I was doing my research on you is that you've invented your own sport. <laughs> uh, it was fun. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. So one of the other things that I've done as an adult is um never went summer camp as a kid. But when I was 19 years old, I left home. I wanted to leave home real bad, but didn't know how I was going to get away from home. And mm-hmm. went on the Internet, as I did. Trying to, and I think I Google. I wasn't Google because it's like Alta Vista. Alta Vista search. Just <laughs> 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 a shout out in the podcast. I sponsored, I, I Googled, I think, summer jobs residential. I was just like, I don't even need that much money. I just want somewhere to live. They'll feed me and let me live there. So I don't have to go stay home all summer. And I found the world of, of residential summer camps. And long story short, ended up in Wisconsin that summer at summer camp. And so over the years, over about 
seven summers now in my adult life at different phases, I have worked as a, you know, sort of worked my way up. I was a tennis counselor. I played tennis in high school, tennis in college, worked my way up from tennis director to senior staff, program director stuff. Anyway, in 04, I was tennis director at a camp and it rained too much. And I had been at that camp two years before. So everybody knew me. I built tennis up at that camp. It was all boys camp in, in, in um, Connecticut called Camp of Wasting. And, and anyway, it rained too much this summer and the courts of that camp were old. And so when it got really slick outside, it got rainy, the courts would get slick for whatever reason. So we couldn't play on them because kids would fall and just, I mean, they would just take the worst bites. <laughs> and so I was like, Isn't, this is dangerous. We can't play on these courts on those rainy days after, immediately after the rain. And so tennis polo, talker, as it was called, came about because I just had to find something to do with these kids. I was a victim of my own success because we had built tennis up to be so popular at camp that I'd get you know, 25 and 30 kids in the afternoon who had electives to do whatever they wanted and was out for tennis to hang out with me and my assistant. And so, you know, it was raining. I was like, what are we going to do? Ron, I don't know what we're going to do, but we just want to hang out with you. And so we started just trying out different things with tennis rackets and tennis ball, mostly keep ourselves occupied. (laughs) And tennis ball and tennis racket on a soccer field was the one that stuck. And it turned into a revolution. I mean, like that summer, Tucker was more popular than everything other than the waterfront that summer. And so over the years... Everywhere I've been, I've taken it with me, um, taken it with me to Wyoming, taken it with me to other camps. Um, and so it's on, you can Google it, Tennis Polo, it's on Wikipedia, tennispolo.com, talker.com is on Twitter at Tennis Polo. I think it's on Twitter at Tennis Polo, maybe, I don't even know. To be fair, it's not something that I ever expect to like monetize or make a thing of, but I am a mm-hmm. fan of sports, love baseball, love hockey, um, I love every sport pretty much. I've researched all these sports when we were developing this. And it's so it's, I don't know what I would end up being. I think if I was if I hadn't ended up doing this, I was interested. I wanted the PhD really bad. I love education a lot, so I think I wanted to study education policy. And I've had a little opportunity to do some of that stuff um, as an adult, sort of doing um, you know sort of nonprofit work and things like that. But yeah, Talker just sort of happened, and it's sort of, like I said it's sort of become a thing of its own. I'd love to see it adopted, kind of like Ultimate Frisbee someday, where college kids are playing it. So if anybody out there wants to make it a thing, let's feel free to hit me up and we can <laughs> we can turn Talker into a thing. But it's just something it's just it's just a random footnote kind of thing that I like sticking in a bio because it's kind of random. You know, it's not something you do every day. And, right. and it's a legitimate sport with real rules. And basically, it's just tennis, a tennis ball and a tennis racket on a soccer field. And the original way we played it, everybody had a racket. But, you know, working at camps, they thought it was all dangerous. So a few years ago, 2010, I was at a, I worked at a tennis and soccer camp where the kids were legitimate athletes. And these kids loved it, too, which was weird because they're like legit. These kids are like really good tennis players and really good soccer players and really good at horseback mm-hmm. riding. And it took off there. And so we refined the rules there. And basically only the goalkeepers have rackets now. But the sport is a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun. And I, I love it. It really is my passion. And I don't do it much, obviously, these days and can't play alone. But it's a neat footnote. It's a neat footnote. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Uh, commissioner of a pro talker league. No, uh, <laughs> um, five years. I'd like to be doing my own thing. I'd like to be, you know, I'm really interested in, and you have a lot of really, I've been doing this thing in enterprise and working with companies and working with organizations. And I'd love to help sort of strategize the future of the, where the web goes. Right. And I'm, I'm not in everything in this high level. Seth Godin always says the best in the world is, you have to define what best in the world means for you. Best in the world could be the best cupcake shop on Main Street, or it could be the best, you know, you could be Microsoft. You've got to define what best in the world means for you. So for me, best in the world simply means, like, successful, influential, 
somebody people respect to listen to, but somebody who's always trying to do more. And so, you know, maybe doing my own firm or something like that. I've done smaller things before, but something like that. Or I could also see a world where, you know, working for, you know, sort of a large enterprise and helping them sort of envision the future and, and strategize and things like that. And I'm, I tend to be flexible about these kinds of things, um, mm -hmm. in part because I'm not a big fan of thinking about the future too much because it means you got old. But <laughs> and so I have a very complicated relationship with being old. My dad always says, my dad always says that he's like, well, jump. the alternative is the other thing. So I'm like, all right, you're right. So, but I, I'm excited about the future, but I think that leading my own thing would be ideal. It just would be really interesting to be able to work with a different, you know, dis disparate kind of audiences, not just kind of one audience, but I'm open. I'm open to the future. I don't, I don't really know, but hopefully it'd be exciting. Well, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? Probably the most, if you're listening to this, I'd say, I, geez, please, like, tell me who you are so we can, like, put you on a speaking thing or something. So follow me on Twitter. It's at Ron Bronson on Twitter. Okay. As far as website stuff is concerned, you can find me at ronbronson.com. And from there, that'll take you to the myriad of random websites that I have. I think I own every Ron Bronson domain there is. Not really, but a lot of them. It's kind of ridiculous. But ronbronson.com will get you where you need to be for the most part. Well, and, and you have a very easy kind of alliterative name to, to remember. Yes. Ron Bronson. <laughs> exactly. Easy to, easy to get. Can't biff that one. <laughs> I, was very pleased at, I was very pleased at that. My parents did a really good job with that. It makes it really easy. I didn't want to have to make it too complicated. It's great. I'm a junior, actually, but we don't, even, we don't talk about that. So. I got you. Well, Ron, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. Thank you for just telling me about, you know, kind of the path that you've taken to get where you are now. Thanks for just schooling us on web governance and web strategy and, and ways that we can sort of become better designers and better entrepreneurs by really integrating content better into projects and things like this. Just thank you so much. This has been really good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out to me. This is awesome. This is a fantastic service you provide, and, and I'm really glad to be part of it. I've been watching you as a fan for a while, and so I'm really happy to be part of it. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week. Thanks to Ron Bronson for a great conversation, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ron's work at ronbronson.com. There are also more links in the show notes over at revisionpath.com. Thanks to our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp and Hover, as always. When it comes to sending emails to dozens, hundreds, or thousands of people, MailChimp is the place to go. Even if you don't have any design knowledge about HTML newsletters and things like that, MailChimp makes it super easy to put together well-designed and beautiful campaigns. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Hover makes registering and managing domain names super, super easy. Remember earlier when I talked about their free valid transfer service, no matter how many domains you have? They also have a volume discount on your domain renewal. So if you have well over 10 domains like I do, I have, let's just say I have more than 10, but uh, if you have well over 10 domains like I do, it's cheaper to go with Hover when it comes time to renew. The more domains you have, the less you have to pay. Not only that, you can save 10% off your first purchase by using promo code 50episodes, and that does work on renewals as well, so check that out. And of course, huge thanks to Facebook for sponsoring this week's episode. Major, major love to them for showing revision paths of love. I really appreciate that. So I talked about this deal at the top of the show, remember? We are now working with Creative Markets. Um, we've got a really good deal for you. You can use the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout and save 20% off your purchase. 
Uh, you can also visit the Creative Market link that's in the show notes. Uh, it's the same thing. It'll take you right to the discount page. Let me know what you purchased and how you plan to use it. The discount code expires at the end of the month. They have a big bundle going on right now with 75 products that are worth over $1,000. So this will be perfect for that because that bundle actually ends tomorrow. So you might want to hop on that. <laughs> uh, this episode was edited by RJ Basilio and mixed by yours truly. Our intro is by the talented music man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, titled They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Leave a rating and a review. It really means a lot. It really helps us out. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.